Welcome to Tyler2040. This is another very special episode. I'm sitting with Zach Cohn. Zach was the first person I thought of when I decided to make a podcast in which I interview people working in the public sector. He has an impressive list of accomplishments, but the one we're discussing today is his recent work with 18F. 18F is a government agency housed under the General Services Administration. Their purpose is to support agencies in transforming the way they deliver digital services and technology products. Here's a bit of trivia for you before we start. Do you think the name 18F sounds like a weird startup out of Silicon Valley? As it turns out, the naming of government agencies is tricky. After trying to pass more than 40 names through the legal channels, the founder finally tried the address of the office, which is located at the corner of 18th and F in Washington, D.C., That's the name that passed, and it remains the name today. Now we turn to Zach, who will introduce you to 18F and what they do. I like to describe it to people, you know, did you hear about the whole healthcare.gov website? I did hear about that. It was kind of a kerfuffle. Yeah, you remember how that didn't go so well? (laughs) So, yes. After, around the time of that happening, there were a bunch of different people trying to do a bunch of different things. And that sort of like solidified a lot of these movements. So 18F got started after that. Um, I don't know if anyone from 18F was actually part of the recovery effort, but we were all, okay. you know, friends of friends, so to speak. And we really exist to make sure things like that don't happen again. So some, you and some of your listeners may have heard of USDS, the United States Digital Service. Mm-hmm. I sort of describe them as the people who parachute into a burning building to put out the fire, while 18F is more of the architects and the engineers who build the building so it won't catch on fire in the first place. So agencies come to us with big technology projects and say, we'd really love some help with this big technology project we're working on. Uh, and we say, okay. And then we have cross-functional teams of developers, designers, product managers, procurement experts, which are, which is government speak for people who buy things for the government. Uh, we've got policy experts. We've got all sorts of different people who sort of come together to form a cross-functional team and work with the agency on their big project that we're going to work on. Okay. Okay. So the healthcare.gov situation really demonstrated the need for 18F to to come in and be a thing? I think it both demonstrated the need and it woke a lot of people in government up to the fact that like that was real bad and Mm -hmm. we probably don't want that happen to us. Uh, and so it's sort of, I mean, there was like a lot of people who were fighting the good fight and trying to make these technology projects work anyway, but it gave mm-hmm. a lot of the people who were fighting that fight already a lot of the political ammunition to pressure their superiors or their peers or Congress or whoever they needed to pressure mm-hmm. into actually like taking technology projects a little more seriously. And more seriously typically means more money. No, right? actually, no. in our opinion... I'm not going to speak for 18F because I don't work there anymore. But uh, okay. in many people who work at 18F's opinion, uh, actually less money is usually better. Healthcare.gov had a was a $1 billion website. And a lot of times in governments, the importance of a project is tied to its budget. And its budget is tied to its importance. So the more important something is, the more okay. expensive it should be, the more money you want to spend on it. But at some point, mm-hmm. uh, you just have so much money to spend that you got to spend it on something. <laughs> Because in government, it looks bad if you don't spend your whole budget. 
um, for a multitude of reasons. And so they had so much money to spend, they just hired so many different people and then everyone ends up getting in each other's way, right? It's sort of like how a startup of three or four people can make decisions much more rapidly than a company of 50,000 people, right? And there's advantages and disadvantages to both of those sizes. But in general, every person you add doesn't add an additional 40 hours a week because there's some overhead involved. So so at some point, like two people, probably not enough people to work on healthcare.gov. Probably. Like $15 budget, probably too small. $1 billion, probably too big. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's a lot of times when, you know, you have so much money, you just got to spend it all. But Mm -hmm. you'd be much more, it'd be much more beneficial to do a small project first. Just take a small piece of the project, do a pilot, do a prototype, do 10 Mm -hmm. prototypes. And when you say first, you mean pre-budget? Well, before the the final budget number is... Yeah, it's sort of this idea of working incrementally instead of all at once, Mm -hmm. right? So instead of saying, well, we need this really big, complicated system, whether it's healthcare.gov, which is more complicated than a lot of people realize, um, or whether it's the Department of Defense's like internal travel organization system, right? Like the, These projects are mm-hmm. complicated. You could give it a budget of a billion dollars, and then it's like, go spend a billion dollars all at once and go do the thing. Or you could start with a budget of like $2 million, and you can see what you can do for that amount. And then after that, uh-huh. you either throw some of it away, which like kind of sucks, but it was only $2 million, and it only took you six months to figure out that this wasn't going to work instead of a billion dollars and it taking seven to eight years. Mm. Um, th- this is actually getting really into a lot of the work that I was doing. When I was at 18F, I was part of their uh, acquisitions team, um, called ourselves Axstack. And uh, one of the things that we were trying to do was really promote a different philosophy around procurement where a lot of times when again when the government buy i'll I'll tell you a story stories are always better right okay yeah uh we got tipped off that the state of california uh their department of child welfare was or whatever it's called in california was Mm -hmm. uh about to release an rfp for a new child welfare system Uh, a lot of states right now are working on replacing their aging child welfare systems these things are 30 or 40 years old in some cases they're using technology that was end of life 10 or 15 years ago they're in desperate need of replacing these technical systems Mm -hmm. this rfp was going to be 1700 pages long it was going to be a five to seven year project and it was going to be a 500 million dollar project that was going to be awarded to a single vendor i can see what you mean about being overscoped. right so we all know how this story is going to end right it's going yeah, to end and, in lots of tears right and your rfp your request for proposal is that's not even like the final plan that's the hey give us a plan right and that was supposed to detail all the requirements and everything they wanted the system to do but if they if they weren't expecting delivery for five to seven years like do you think that their needs will change in five to seven years like seven years ago we barely had the iphone right Mm -hmm. people were still mostly on like little flip feature phones so Mm -hmm. what will tend to happen even if you have a great vendor who actually is like doing good work because of how the government asks vendors to work in many cases a lot of vendors are garbage uh but but a lot of vendors are great too and a lot of times the the fault lies on how the government asks for vendors to work um Mm -hmm. no vendor could succeed in that situation and and it turns out there's only two or three companies that would even consider bidding on a project like that because of the risk involved right Mm -hmm. where we ended up getting california to go instead was to release an rfp to create a pool of vendors so instead of 
having your big project and you award $500 million to a single vendor. We said, we're going to do this big project. We're going to award different parts of the project to a lot of different vendors. We're going to break up this big project into lots of small parts. Okay. And we want to get a pool of vendors that we're sort of pre-approving that have the, that we know have the technical chops to do this, that we know work in a style and a way and a method that we like to work in. We were trying to push them to work uh, in an agile methodology instead of a waterfall methodology, mm-hmm. um, which for listeners who don't know what that is basically means uh instead of doing all the planning up front and then building everything and then testing everything and then releasing all at once seven years from now you do all of that but over the course of two weeks and then you release something uh and then you do it again and you do it again and again and again and you work in these two week sprints and every two weeks you release software that works doesn't necessarily do a lot but it works every two weeks. And you're working with users, with real people who would be using the software the entire time, which means if you ever make a mistake, if you ever build something, users can be like, oh, that is definitely going to make my life worse. And you find out in like two weeks instead of seven years. So right. we were pushing California to work like this. They released a pool of vendor. They, they wanted a pool of vendors who... Um, would work in this way. And so they ended up, we ended up testing uh, a lot of these vendors. We said, here's a data set. Um, we want you to go build a prototype with this data set. You've got a week to, to build a something, and we want you to upload your code to GitHub so we can review your code. Your code and the comments and the supporting documentation should prove and demonstrate to us that you know how to work this way. And we want like 500 words of prose, which is very different than the normal proposal, which is like 500 pages of prose and no coding whatsoever. So we ended up assembling this group of vendors. Uh, they put out the first work order, which I forget the exact numbers, but it was something like $700,000 or $1.3 million or something like that. Um, and okay. they, they awarded it to a vendor and the vendor got started to work and they started working on the next task order. And about four or five months ago, they hit a milestone. And they got that working software in the hands of users a few months before the original timeline had the proposals due. So according to their original timeline, they would right now be reviewing proposals to make this $500 million award. But instead, with this course of action, they have working software in the hands of users. Doesn't do everything. Doesn't do most things. But they're starting. So that's a lot of the work that we were doing and pushing uh, at 18F is... And there's like problems with that uh, methodology as well. And, and 18F mm-hmm. is incrementing and iterating on what we recommend to our, our customers and our clients, their customers and their clients. Sorry, I only left a few weeks ago. I'm still getting used to that. <laughs> right. But, but in general, it massively decreases the risk um, and it massively decreases the consequences as well of failure. Right. It's the, uh, the, the popular saying is to fail fast, right? Yeah, we don't like to encourage people to fail fast. Like the goal is not to fail. <laughs> The goal is to but try things to. fast, <laughs> right? Well, um, I, there's a, a rock climber, some like famous free climber who, you know, climbs two miles up a flat mountain face with no ropes and no safety equipment. And he talks a lot about mm. how there's a difference between risk and consequences. The risk is the chance of something bad happening and consequences are how bad mm. that bad thing is. So what I'm really interested in and I was really interested in teaching our clients was separate those two concepts in your head. So the chance of something bad happening with this sort of agile methodology and breaking things apart into little tiny chunks and working with lots of different vendors, the chance of something bad happening is actually fairly high. Mm -hmm. We're revealing that risk. However, the consequences are astronomically low, right? 
right. in government speak, losing a million dollars is actually not a big deal when you were planning on spending $500 million, right? And finding out that something isn't going to work in three or four months is way better than finding out it's not going to work in five to seven years. And so what I was really interested in there was helping our clients understand the difference between risk and consequence and how you want to mitigate your risk. But what you really want to do is mitigate the consequences of failure because we're going to fail. Things are going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just inevitable. Right. That's, that's the nature of the beast. Yes. Always. Yeah. So what has it been like working in DC in that, in that highly everything is, everything seems to be government environment? Uh, I'm reading a lot more Politico. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I started watching congressional hearings, uh, which is like super weird. I had a, I had a congressional hearing watching party a few months ago <laughs> and like a bunch of people showed up to turn on C-SPAN and to watch like a bunch of senators grill some person about some topic. And I was like super interested in it, um, which is like not a thing that I would ever say I would do before. Uh, I once spent a night, I came home from work and I made some tea and I sat down on the couch and I turned some music on and I pulled up my laptop and I pulled up a 150 page IG report, Inspector General. Uh, hmm. And I read an Inspector General report on some topic. And that was like my evening reading, which was very strange. Oh. Um, and just enjoying yourself with the, with a cup of tea. Yeah. But, but I think like, what, like the actual answer to your question, right? Um, mm -hmm. I think I've learned to understand that things are way more complicated than people think they are. And it's both like things are more complicated than people think they are, and they're also way simpler than people think they are. Like, mm -hmm. Seeing how decisions are made sometimes, like you, from the outside, you assume it's the government, right? And there's mm -hmm. a bunch of people and, you know, all these things that go into some of these decisions. And then sometimes when you're in the room, when decisions are being made, like these are just normal people. <laughs> these are just mm -hmm. normal people and they're doing the best they can with the information they have and the deadlines they have and the mm -hmm. congressional pressures or the public pressures that they have. Um, and they're just trying to do the best job they can. And so it, it's really humanized government for me in a lot of ways, where before it was like a spokesperson for this agency. And I'm like, no, that's not a spokesperson. For the, that's just Eric. Like <laughs> he sits two <laughs> seats down from me. Like he's just a human being. <laughs> Uh, so that's been really interesting. Um, and then just like a general awareness of the, the problems of the world and things that like I didn't really ever empathize with before. I didn't really understand the impacts of like, you know, these days, you know, we're, we're talking in mid July. Healthcare is like a big thing, right? That's in the news these days and Medicare and Medicaid specifically. Right. And like, I, I understand why those programs are important way better than I ever could have before. And even though, you know, I look around and no one in my immediate friend circle is necessarily on those programs, like I can empathize with the people who are on those programs much better than I could have before. I really like saw how they worked and saw all the good that they did in the world. Mm. Okay. Um, would the, the actual work environment, like the, the work culture and what people do after work, do you find it to be significantly different from what you had in, uh, say, Seattle? Or is it just people working in offices and work is work? Um, I think a lot of people in D.C. care a lot about their work. So you'll go to a bar in D.C. or a restaurant after work and... <laughs> But there's a congressional testimony on the TV screen, right? Mm -hmm. Or there, you know, you go out and literally you couldn't find a place with a television that wasn't playing the debates during the election cycle, right? And I feel right. like that is a little different than a lot of other places where you could find places that had, that was, you know, playing the debate. 
but you could avoid them. It's like, you can't avoid it here. It's just everywhere. Um, you know, my neighbor works the Department of Labor. Person down the street works the Department of Justice. Um, my, my housemate works for the Fed. Like the, it's an, indus- it's a company town, sort of. It's an industry town. And that definitely, you know, you, you'll be walking down the street at night and you hear two people arguing over monetary policy <laughs> while they're out, like, <laughs> while they're out drinking at a bar in, in downtown or whatever, right? Like, this is just what happens. This is what people think about. This is what people live. Um, so, you know, it's similar in that people care a lot about their work. People talk about a lot of things, but I feel like it's one of the few places in the country where the topic of conversation is this sort of stuff. Got it. Uh, did anything in particular draw you toward uh, working with public sector? I know you did some stuff in Washington State before you made it out to D.C. Is there anything particularly attractive about public sector work or did it just kind of happen? You know, it just matters a lot. It mm. the, the chance to you know really help a lot of people and, and use some of my skills in technology and in product development to help some of these programs be successful. Um, I was, my first project was with the EPA and I was helping them build a digital system of tracking hazardous waste as it moves around the country. Um, it's like a multi hundred million dollar program. Like that's not a thing mm. that you can necessarily, uh, that's not the sort of impact that you can have in many other places, right? Um, to walk away and know that like True. you helped, uh, you helped the country track hazardous waste better. And that's going to mean a whole lot of uh, improvements, both for the environment, but also for industry, who doesn't have to fill out uh, these carbon copy forms and six clip it, which is like triplicate, but there's six of them, <laughs> which is what they currently have to do. Um, and everybody hates it. And so like, you can help a lot of different people, whether it's industry or whether it's, you know, helping the mission of the agency and helping protect the environment. So, you know, the, the, I was really drawn to the chance to just help and have a big impact on some pretty, or even have a small impact, but on some pretty big programs. So you find a lot more significance in the work in general. Yeah. Definitely. Do you think you're going to keep working with uh, government and NGOs uh, now that you're done with 18F? Because it was just your contract expired, right? We were hired on, on to... We're hired on two-year terms, and so okay. my two-year term expired, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm interested. I'm entrepreneurial at heart, so I want to go back mm-hmm. to, like, starting something new. Um, I've never been particularly drawn to the idea of nonprofits, uh, although I do mm-hmm. keep getting sucked into them. <laughs> Um, but I am really interested in staying on and making sure whatever I do next is focused on some of these problems that I noticed and some of these problems that I I became aware of because of my time in government. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I I believe that a company can do a lot of good while still being a for-profit. Um, you can, you can solve a problem by making something better, uh, than what it is today. So that's, that's what I'm really interested in Mm -hmm. doing is looking for problems, finding problems that, you know, traditionally people in the startup world have ignored because they haven't really noticed those problems because those problems just aren't in their orbit um, and seeing mm-hmm. how we can bring some of the, the the magic of technology, the magic of user experience, right? Making things easier for people to use, how we can bring some mm-hmm. of that to services that traditionally are pretty painful and difficult to use, but still really important. Nice. Nice. Um, I'm glad that you're not just looking to build another food delivery app because there are about nine of them in Paris right now. Yeah. And I, I think that's enough. How many do you that use? that has been serviced. Uh, two. Use two. Oh. Well, there might be room for a third in your life. <laughs> you know, it depends on whatever the promotional thing is for your first order. Right, right. Yeah. Um, 
so you've done a little bit of work with Washington State as well. Um, how would you say that compared with the the federal level work that you've done in DC? Uh, it was uh, a what, good it was a good place to what's, what's the phrase cut my teeth. Um, mm-hmm. When I was working with Washington State, I was a contractor, not an employee, but I was helping them with a program to make it easier for small business owners to interact with the state. So permits or licenses or filing taxes or, you know, whatever. Um, and that was that was a lot of fun. We got to go around and we interviewed a couple hundred small business owners all over the state. And one of my goals there was to teach my teach the team of state employees I was working with the value of talking to your customers up front and how to do that because that wasn't a thing that they mm-hmm. had done a ton of before and so teaching them the skills to do that um and that was really valuable that was uh you know really helping helping that office learn about user-centered design and learn about customer interviews and customer development and spreading that knowledge throughout the rest of state government is a really valuable and important thing so you say that is good to good place to start so it wasn't quite the same level of overwhelming that you might have in in dc for example but did you see a different uh, a different depth to the way like the the state employees that you worked with viewed government in washington state versus what you see in dc for example uh, i don't think anyone's going out to the bar to watch the public broadcast of uh, the local town council meeting. That is true. I think there's just a different intensity um, in D.C. than anywhere else. Okay. <clears throat> um, because it's so big, because the issues are so big, because everyone in the world is watching the issues here, um, the mm-hmm. intensity is a lot more. In Washington State, like the whole world isn't necessarily watching the, the local issues at play in Washington State. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I do think people should get more involved. You know, I think uh, if you live in Washington state, it probably actually makes more sense for you to watch your state legislature, you know, hearings and budget debates mm-hmm. and every, and, and debates on issues and topics. It makes a lot more sense for you to go to the Seattle or Olympia or Tacoma or Yakima town council meetings, um, mm-hmm. or whatever they're called in your particular location. I think that does make a ton of sense because those are the issues that impact you directly here in, here in DC, you know, we're, we're, dealing with a lot of national level issues and this is the hub for that almost universally you can have a ton of impact in at the very very local level even if it doesn't feel as important because it's not impacting as many people all change just about bubbles up from the local level the that's part of like how our country is designed right is you've got a bunch of different states and they all are trying different things and just like in science when you run a bunch of different experiments and then you go see what works and what doesn't. That's what all the states are doing. And mm-hmm. when one state runs an experiment and it seems to work, and then other states replicate that and it seems to work, and then it eventually spreads and spreads and spreads, and eventually the federal government sort of adopts that as the new way to do things. And states frequently aren't where experiments start. Experiments usually start at the city level or the county level. Mm-hmm. And so if you live in a place, especially like a more, well, it doesn't really matter. If, if you live pretty much anywhere, if you can get involved at the local level, you can have a disproportionate impact because your voice in a couple thousand or a couple tens of thousands or even a couple hundreds of thousands 
um, so versus, much louder versus a voice in a couple hundred million. Uh, mm-hmm. And not even if you're in a city like Seattle, a population of 700,000 or so inside the city proper and like 1.4 million in the general region. Um, it may seem like you don't have much of a voice, but nobody goes to those meetings, you know, unless right. it's a, uh, taxi drivers versus Uber sort of conversation. Like nobody goes to those meetings. So if you go, you're not a one in a, you're not in one in 1.3 million. You're one in like 30. And, mm-hmm. and your voice can be heard and your voice can make a pretty big difference. So I really encourage people when I get back to Seattle, um, I, I plan on getting involved somehow in a lot more of the local issues there because I've seen the impact that it can have. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's really valuable to get involved there. And a lot of times, you know, they there's these rough calculation, rough hand wavy estimates um, for different types of vocalizations, I guess. So it, for con- for Congress people, they treat an email like it. They treat one email like it represents. I don't know the exact numbers, but like five or 10 constituents. They treat Mm -hmm. a letter like it represents uh, 100 constituents. They treat every phone call like it represents 500 constituents. And they treat in-person visits like it represents 1,000 constituents or something, some Mm -hmm. scale like that. And so Mm -hmm. when you speak up, it's not you speaking up just for you. People generally recognize that if if this topic is important enough for one person to come here and speak up, there's probably a thousand other people that feel that way. And it's important Mm -hmm. enough for five people to come speak up. It's probably important enough that 5,000 people feel that way. So so you're actually speaking with a much louder voice than you think you are. Mm. Lots of responsibility. Sure. Yeah. Um, So kind of switching gears here. Uh, there's something that has been kind of in the back of the, in the back of my mind whenever I look at government becoming more and more efficient. Is is it is it possible or problematic for the government to become too efficient? Um, there are benefits to bureaucracy. Um, there are benefits to less bureaucracy. And have you gotten a sense of how? How efficient could be too efficient, or do you see anything around? Or this, I guess, this is really just your opinion. But on that spectrum of, uh, it takes uh, thirty days for me to register my small business in the state of Washington, versus I can vote for my state election, federal election online. Um, do you see? That there is some sort of sweet spot between uh, in bureaucracy to perfect efficiency, or do we not know yet because we haven't really seen how an efficient government well, what can do, work? What do you see as the downsides of efficiency in government? Tyranny, essentially. Uh, if you if a government the government holds all the cards or more cards than anybody else. So if if they are able to implement changes swiftly then they can implement changes faster than they are able to evaluate them. So I think then it's useful to separate the thing, uh, efficiency from speed, right? No, I don't, I don't feel like the government is going to get particularly tyrannical if you can register a business in one day instead of 30. Like that, mm-hmm. that doesn't seem like there's many downsides to that, right? But if you think about right. the rulemaking process where there's public and comment periods and then people have to write the rule and then you have to go get mm-hmm. public feedback on the rule and then you go through a couple iterations of that and that can take a year or two. Um, sure, like that makes sense that you should have sufficient time for the public to provide feedback on things. Now, it would also be nice if the government listened to the public's feedback 
in the case of the FCC and net neutrality, where you have something like 4 million comments for net neutrality, mm -hmm. and the FCC commissioner is like, eh, we're not really interested in how many comments there are. Um, mm -hmm. Like, that's that's a little obnoxious. So I think, I think in many instances, <clears throat> I'm not so worried about the speed at which things are done. I'm more worried about the about whether or not the public's opinion is actually solicited and then heard and then uh, implemented. Um, and in many cases, like the, the things you hear from the public or the things you hear from uh, requests for more information from the public or, or feedback from the public, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times that's super biased. You know, we got that at 18F all the time where we'd, uh, someone would put out a question and then a bunch of people from industry would complain a bunch about 18F. <laughs> And all the things right. that we were doing. And you've got right. these like multi-billion dollar companies complaining about a government agency that has 150 people working for it. Um, mm -hmm. and talking about how like we're, we're going to ruin their business and we're stealing all their work or whatever. And it like couldn't be farther from the truth. So I don't know. There's, it's important for the government to get feedback from the people. It's important for the government to listen to that feedback, especially when it's overwhelming in a particular direction. Um, I think you're mm -hmm. seeing a trend now more and more where political appointees are ignoring uh, feedback from the people, which is frustrating. Um, but I really don't see efficiency in getting things done as being the big problem there. Okay. So beyond public comment the area that i see as uh questionable i don't really i don't have a strong opinion on on this particular topic yet because i don't think i know enough about it um all i have is a, a knee-jerk reaction for uh national registry kind of things uh -huh. for example um the united states does not have a national identity card type of thing uh -huh. we have social security numbers which are a mess yeah it's they weren't intended to be what they've been used for right and it shows yep but potentially we could come up with a strong national identity system that maintains well that is used for all those same things that social security numbers are used for but in a secure way so we would have immediate access to for example, um, driver's license information, mm -hmm. tax information, health records, um, who is in my family, where I've lived, um, car registration, what I own for insurance, life insurance policy, uh, prison record, all of that based on just one point of identification. We don't have that in the United States, to my knowledge. Uh, otherwise, the IRS wouldn't be asking me how much money I make. They would be telling me right uh in, that's a, I, I that's a different that they thing kind but... <laughs> of have an idea of it right now but uh that's a different thing that i'm I, actually like hugely in favor of but we can talk about that later <laughs> right that's that's a an easy win on this topic that if the irs were to be able to tell us how much money we're making and then we just sign off on it like how many other countries do it um that would be great but is there a downside to having um a centralized identity uh, that's that's a question around that's a question that i feel falls in the uh, bureaucracy to efficiency area because i just don't know what uh, how uh, how intense the consequences could be mm -hmm. um, because what if what if we actually already had a muslim registry with with uh, a president changing 
changing hands, what, what would we be doing then? What would we have going on right now if we already had that registry based on national identification? Mm-hmm. It's something I, I've been thinking about and can't really, uh, haven't really gotten around the whole issue, but that's where I'm, that's where my head is on that question of where the spectrum is. Interesting. So when I, when I think of efficiency in government, I tend to think more about like, there's a, there's a business process that we have. It's mm-hmm. frequently still done with paper or across 10 different systems. There's a lot of data duplication. There's a lot of hand copying and pasting. Um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of like approval chains that might be longer than they particularly need to be uh, or mm-hmm. sometimes shorter than they need to be. Um, and that's the stuff that I really think about and I really focus on is how can we take this existing business process and reimagine it to take up a lot less time, a lot less human effort, reduce mm-hmm. the chance of uh, errors because you're mm-hmm. limiting the amount of like data inputted by hand. That's that's where my head usually usually sits is how can we mm-hmm. fix a lot of those types of issues. Right, right. At the, uh, I guess that kind of the uh the micro scale there's right. there's so much that can be done it's the the philosophical question at the macro level is uh different yeah so but even even at the sense of like the irs right there's there's a huge argument to be made for flipping how the irs functions um because like employers already submit all this data to the irs um, so mm-hmm. they like generally already know how much you're making. And there's always situations where there's exceptions. And so what many other countries do, I think what you're referring to is the IRS receives all this data from employers and then goes and does all the calculations themselves um, mm-hmm. and then sends out a proposed tax return basically to every individual saying, mm-hmm. this is what we made for you. Um, if this seems right, sign it and hit a button and send it back or whatever. If this is wrong, then go ahead and like, you know, do, right. do it yourself and submit your custom one to us. And, you know, for 10% of people, they would still have to do the same way they do it today. But for 90% mm-hmm. of people who have a W-2 that they get every year and that's it, um, mm-hmm. they don't, they don't have any special tax situations. It would drastically reduce the cost of both doing your taxes as an individual and the cost of processing your taxes as, um, as the IRS. So I think that would be a huge boon. Um, and I don't think you actually need anything particularly radically different than what we have today to do that switch. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it seems like a great idea for everyone except Intuit, the company that creates TurboTax. Right. The company that annually lobbies against this sort of legislation, which infuriates mm-hmm. me to no end. Right. Same. Same. Um, so uh, back to, I guess, closer to the actual work at 18F, would you describe the relationship between the government and their vendors as healthy? I think it's a big government. Or... <laughs> it's a yeah, it's it's a big government. It's a big industry sure. full of vendors. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there are certainly examples of healthy relationships between an agency and a vendor. Um, I think mm-hmm. on the whole, there's a lot of improvement to be had on both sides. Okay. I think you have a lot of government agencies who are asking for things that will guarantee failure. And you have a lot of vendors who won't bid because of that, who are otherwise great vendors because they recognize this project is bound for disaster town. And again, like going back to our earlier examples, the government is asking, you know, the government is providing 1500 pages of requirements 
and they're asking a single vendor to be responsible for $500 million over seven years or something like that. Like, this is, this is an irresponsible ask. Um, and there's a lot of great vendors who are just going to stay really far away from that. On the other right. hand, there's also a lot of vendors who will gladly take the government's money and gladly throw a bunch of humans at it for five to seven years to make $500 million. And then they will sort of recognize after a couple years that, oh, this might not be done on time, so we're going to need some more money. And I think at the individual level, people want to do a good job. But their companies, and not even any individuals at their companies, just like the the systems that have been built set those individuals up for failure. And there's not a lot those individuals can do about it. And like, you know, that person, you know, Samantha works for a company. And the way that company makes money is by getting massive government contracts. So the government is designed, mm-hmm. sorry, the company is designed to get these massive government contracts. And then they throw Samantha and her team at it. And like, hopefully this goes well. And right. then it doesn't. Um, so I think that there's a lot of problems with that relationship. I think the government is certainly responsible for its fair share of those problems. And I think industry is responsible for a fair share as well. Um, do you see, do you see it improving? Is there a reason to be optimistic? I think what 18F and USDS are doing in the acquisition space is changing the game. It, you know, small changes, you got to start with small changes because the government's yep. a big ship and takes a long time to turn. But, um, I think a lot of the stuff that they are trying to do is not even new, honestly. Um, a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the procurement practices that we're trying to, that they're trying to implement were written about in the mid nineties as best practices for buying software and nobody ever really picked up on it. Nobody ever really mm-hmm. ran with it. Uh, a lot of people who buy technology and technology services in government like grew up buying tanks and pencils and you know, I need a pencil that is about seven inches tall and has graphi- a graphite tip that's this thick mm-hmm. with this hardness and it has an eraser on the end with this level of erasability and the best person who can give me the best proposal for buying a million of these pencils will get the contract and that makes a lot- that's a great way to buy pencils I need, right. I need a tank that has treads and it shoots whatever tanks shoot <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's got armor that's this thick and it can go this fast and it takes this type of fuel great like that's that's a great way to buy a tank in some situations mm-hmm. um I need a piece of software that, you know, does all these different things. Like, it just doesn't work for software as well. Um, mm-hmm. your, your functional requirements don't translate to a good user experience. The software takes so long to build that cha- requirements change. What people need mm-hmm. changes. Um, and software is not flexible enough to do that all the time, especially not the way it's traditionally built. So mm-hmm. a lot of the problem falls in the training that the contracting officers have received and the traditions of the contracting officers and how they buy things is just not a good fit for the modern world of buying software. And so 18F has a lot of um, people who are software developers and are procurement people, and they understand both sides of that world, and they can see how to buy software differently in a way that will enable high-quality software uh, development. Okay. That all makes sense. Good. I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So the the last question I'm going to ask you here is one I've asked uh, pretty much everyone so far. Uh, that it makes sense. Um, what can you tell me about going through uh, the recent executive transition? What 
kind of transition did you experience? That's a complicated answer. <laughs> um, at some level, it didn't affect us at all. Like, we work with other federal agencies. They come to us and propose projects. We're not funded by Congress. We're funded through our work with other agencies. Those agencies pay us for basically what we cost. So the goal is for 18F to break even. Um, okay. So, like, at a, at a operational level, it didn't really change anything. Like, we're still here. Agencies still have big technology projects they need help with. Mm-hmm. Um, we can still help them. So operationally, it really didn't change much. Having different political appoint, so there's two types of employees in the government. Well, that's a gross mm-hmm. oversimplification, but <laughs> generally, there's career people who apply and get a job, and they work for their agency. They don't work for the mm-hmm. administration. They work for the government. They don't work for President Obama or Trump. Right. Um, and then there's political appointees who don't usually apply. They're usually chosen by the administration, and they're assigned a position, and they just show up one day. They don't show up one day, but <laughs> they they just sort of like appear and they're now in charge of that thing. And there's a intentional tension between those two, mm-hmm. not tension, counterbalancing maybe, where the political appointees are at an agency. And there's usually a couple in each agency. Um, and there's a lot more like in the administration itself. And the, the political appointees are trying to make sure that the president's agenda is being carried out. And the mm-hmm. career employees are making sure that like, the agency's mission is being carried out, right? And they're the ones who are executing on the plan that the agency and Congress and whatever administration started their program are sort of carrying out. So there's sort of like a counterbalance there. Um, GSA doesn't have a ton of political appointees, but 18F... GSA? I'm sorry. GSA is the General Services Administration, which is the agency that 18F is housed under. Got it. Um, We're not our own standalone agency. We we are part of another bigger agency. but we we are our mission is aligned with a lot of the things this administration claims to want to do. They want to make the government more efficient, they want to reduce waste, they want to make things cheaper, and mm-hmm. the outcomes of integrating technology better into your agency excuse me agency and into your project are all of those things your 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 program is more efficient it can mm-hmm. operate for less money. It can operate faster. It can deliver better services, all these things. So what this administration claims to want to do is theoretically aligned with what we are trying to do. And so there's uh, there's some collaboration there in that they are looking for ways to help like unblock us in some of our projects. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's going to be my answer to that question. Thank you very much to Zach Cohn for giving me this interview to help me out with my education for my 2040 campaign. If you want to learn more about 18F, you can go to 18f.gsa.gov. You can find Zach on Twitter. His handle is at Zachary Cohn. That's Cohn, C-O-H-N. Keep following my campaign on Facebook at Tyler2040, and thank you for joining me.